Mr. Wadding. May it please the court. Counsel. Counsel. Um, good morning, Your Honor. My name is uh, Scott Wadding. I represent James Brown um, in this appeal from the Southern District of Iowa's dismissal of Dr. Brown's 1983 claim for First Amendment retaliation. For about 40 years, the United States Supreme Court has said that when a state employee performs their job duties as required within the scope of their employment, that a state employee acts under color of law. In this case, the amended complaint specifically alleges that the defendant, Mark Linder, retaliated against Dr. Brown for his participation in First Amendment protected activity while acting within the scope of defendant Linder's employment as a University of Iowa professor of law. In its pleadings and its motion to dismiss, the state, my reading of the state's motion to dismiss was that the state agreed that Mr. Linder was acting within the scope of his employment. And yet the district court dismissed, dismissed Dr. Brown's complaint saying that, in fact, the complaint failed to plausibly plead that Linder was acting under color of law as required under 1983 and further that the allegations did not rise to the level that would chill a person of ordinary firmness. Counsel, so isn't there a difference, though, between doing something that is simply within the scope of one's employment, even if it's government employment, and exercising state power? Um, Your Honor, I think West versus Atkins directly addresses that question because West versus Atkins says, and that came after the Dodson case, which is what the state relied on um, in, in the pleadings. Um, but West versus Atkins says we adopt the Lugar test to determine if it's state action for purposes of the 14th Amendment, it's under color of law. Those states are, are interrelated in that respect. And so what the question, Judge Gratz, that you're getting at is when you have cases where a, a public official is acting outside of the four corners of the scope of their employment, the courts do look to see whether when that, for example, the, the um, case that's cited by the state um, is the McGee case. That was a police officer who wrote an editorial in his purely private capacity and to advance um, his, the purpose for the police federation, which was also a private entity. And in that case, the McGee court looked at the traditional rule of under color of law and said he didn't use the power of his office when he wrote the editorial and he was doing it for purely personal pursuits and therefore he wasn't acting under color of law. This case is different. This case, it's my understanding, it's undisputed. And the, and the First Amendment complaint plausibly pleads that Linder was acting within the scope of his employment. The state, in fact, in the proceedings below, argued that the, that the complaint did not plausibly allege Linder acted outside the scope of his employment at all times. And so we have, a, in my view, a simple case. It's a simple case where we apply the general rule under West versus Atkins that says when a, when a public employee is acting within the scope of their employment, they act under color of law, except or unless they're a public defender whose position is adverse to the state. And that's really the, the only exception that the United States Supreme Court has recognized as we've briefed is, is, is that of a public defender who's taking an adverse position to the state. So, counsel, help me understand this. So a professor, of course, has uh, First Amendment free speech rights under the Constitution, and the exercise of those rights uh, are usually within the scope of their employment, and even assuming they were in this case, I'm still having trouble seeing how that's exercising state power rather than just exercising <coughs> their First Amendment rights. 
Well, the Garcetti case kind of leaves the question of academic scholarship open. So we don't exactly know what the contours of a public employee who, who is also a college professor, when they make statements and scholarship in the, in the scope of their employment, to what extent are, does the First Amendment apply in that context? I think the court's going to work that out after the Garcetti and, figure, and work that through. Um, but, um, but in this case, under West versus Atkins, if they're acting within the scope of their employment, it's under color of law, unless there are some countervailing reasons for the, for the courts to say that that, that that state actor is not acting under color of law. In the Dodson case, that was a public defender who takes literally a position adverse to the state. It's hard to say that a public defender in that context could be acting under color of law under those circumstances. We've also cited the, um, the, uh, the Montana case, which is the only case that I could find um, in the Eighth Circuit where the court went beyond Dotson. This is an Eighth Circuit case. I went beyond Dotson and said that clergy do not act under color of law. And if you look at the analysis both in Dotson and in the Montano case, what the court's really looking at is text and tradition in many ways. Um, for the Dotson case, when you, we talk about the public defender, private attorneys were traditionally adverse to the state, and that's rooted in the constitutional text in the Sixth Amendment. In the Montano case, the court also applied the functional test, what it identifies as the functional test in Dotson, and said clergy... What's uh, this Montano case? I'm looking... It's, it's in the reply brief, Judge. Oh, for God's sake. So the, Mon the Montano case is, is the one other case that we could find that says... These are all ancient. <laughs> well, the Montana, I mean, yeah, the, yeah. So this is this is 1997. That's and, right. And 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 Dodson and Atkins is 1988. I mean, there's a lot of water over the dam on these issues since then. I think. And all we are here, we are always just debating ancient cases. I think that's 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 a fair statement, Judge. And I think when you look at the traditional test that was applied by the district court in this case, um, applying McGee. I, that says that you have to exercise state power. I think that that observation is diluted in this stream of cases that have come since then in Dodson, in in the Matson, in the Montano case, and in more specifically the West versus Atkins case, because in the in these cases it's which a very is, which is now which how is many years. 34 years? I, I, it's about 40 years, Judge. Yeah. Well, Counsel, McGee versus Hamlin University, it's 2014, right? That's the McGee case, and that's yeah. the one. That's, that's correct, Judge. And in that case, uh, we said this exercise of state power has to be possible only because the wrongdoer is closed with the authority of state law. So in this case, we have speech. Uh, why is that made possible only because of his uh, being closed with the power or authority of state law rather than his inherent First Amendment rights. I have to push back a little bit with the premise of the question, Judge, because McGee cites West. McGee was in, involved a police officer who was pursuing purely private interests in that case. So he was acting outside the scope of his employment. And I don't take issue where someone is acting outside the scope of their employment, whether there's a closer question on, on whether they're exercising state power to, um, to retaliate against somebody. So under the West versus Atkins test, which is cited by McGee, if they're acting within the scope of their employment, generally speaking, they are acting under color of law unless one of the narrow exceptions recognized by the Supreme Court, Dodson, or in the Eighth Circuit, uh, Montana applies. Nevertheless, even under the, the McGee case, we pled that, this, that, that the actions in this case satisfy that standard. 
because it's a, in our view, as we pled in the complaint, the law professor has um, a unique voice when it comes to gaining credibility with his audience in the context of legal proceedings and expert witnesses. And in this case, Dr. Brown testified as an expert witness in a legal proceeding that was brought against a, a private port company by the state labor commissioner. And Dr. Brown provided truthful testimony. And as we have alleged in the complaint, Linder launched a retaliatory campaign that involved multiple defamatory falsehoods spread about the testimony, about, his about Dr. Brown's qualifications, about Dr. Brown's ethics. And if we take the amended complaint as true... Isn't defamation outside the scope of his employment? The state has... I don't think that there's a dispute over whether Linder was acting within the scope of his employment. I think that as the pleadings stand today on appeal, I think it's agreed that, the, that Linder at all times was acting within the scope of his employment. And, and we've cited those in the briefs. Um, and I could just mention it, motion to dismiss page 20, that's joint appendix page 45, and the motion to dismiss page 19, joint appendix page 44 is where I get that. And so that, this is a unique case in the sense that we've all agreed that Linder's acting within the scope of his employment. The question is, what do we do with that? And it's our position that unless he's clergy or unless he's a public defender, he is acting under color of law given the unique procedural posture of this case. Can I come at it from a different angle? Yes, Judge. How about the qualified immunity angle? What makes it clearly established that your client has a right to be free from criticism or harassment from a public university professor? So it's, it's an interesting question. And first, um, we have pled an, an injunctive relief. And so it's our view that qualified immunity would not apply to our claim for injunctive relief to stop Linder from engaging in this behavior going forward. So um, the case, can't, case cannot completely be resolved um, on the qualified immunity grounds for that reason alone. But I think more broadly speaking, there's, there's well-established U.S. Supreme Court precedent and Eighth Circuit precedent that, that addresses this issue of whether a government official can retaliate against somebody for participating in their First Amendment protected activity. That is well established, and that can take many forms. And I understand that there's case law that tries to dial it in to be more specific. But in this case, what we have is a professor of law that we've alleged has engaged in a broad-based campaign to discredit falsely this doctor who was engaged in First Amendment protected activity. And we've cited the, the Baraboo versus City of Minneapolis case from the Eighth Circuit that says, a citizen's right to exercise First Amendment freedoms without facing retaliation from government officials is clearly established. And there are other cases that we've cited as well. I've also cited um, the City of Park Hills case that cites the Bard case, and the Garcia case that cites the Bard case that says even little harassment, if you look at the cumulative effect, can constitute a First Amendment violation. And so in this case, we've alleged severe harassment because that's what we believe happened. Um, and so under the Bart case itself and Garcia and Park Hills and more broadly speaking, our case law that talks about um, the prohibition on retaliation to, uh, for uh, engaging in protected activity, under those cases, we believe it is clearly established. And certainly at the motion to dismiss phase, it'd be premature in our view um, to dismiss it on those grounds until we have a full opportunity to discover the case. Um, so for these reasons, we ask the district court judgment be reversed. Thank you. Mr. Langholz. 
May it please the court, Mr. Wadding, uh, Sam Langholz here uh, representing uh, Professor Mark Linder. The district court correctly dismissed this First Amendment retaliation claim for two independent reasons. Dr. Brown didn't allege a plausible claim that Professor Linder acted under color of law, and he didn't allege retaliatory conduct that would chill a person of ordinary firmness. And in order to reverse the district court, both of these reasons um, would need to be reversed. But let, me, let me tell you what's bothering me the most in this case, is that after, the, after this was dismissed and the supplemental jurisdiction was declined, as I understand it, your solicitor general told the state court to dismiss all claims in state court be under official immunity. Did it occur to anybody in your office that taking conceptually inconsistent positions in federal and state court, which would leave the plaintiff with no remedy anywhere, was so unconscionable as, be, as to be unlikely to fly? Well, your Honor... I, and don't give me all the legal distinctions. I'm asking, I'm asking a... It's not an ethical question. It's a, it's a, you know, should we really do this question? I, I understand uh, the issue that uh, you're raising, Judge Logan. The positions in state and federal court were not inconsistent. We, uh, the state, as uh, Mr. Wadding correctly points out, in federal court as well, did not contest that this was within the scope of employment um, and uh, sought to dismiss the state no, law I, claims I, for the I, same I, reason. I didn't want to hear. I don't want to hear that. I know I can imagine. I can create all of them without even study, without all the distinctions you can draw. But what would, what, what, uh, if, if, uh, if I were so inclined to rule that way, or we were, what, what would we do? It seems to me we would uh, reverse the, the motion to dismiss, vacate the, the dismissal of the state law claims because the, the defamation claim uh, clearly survives the the this choice this under the federal claim and and leave the federal and leave the federal court to decide which of the claims goes forward or do they all fail then at least we would have one jurist decide applying both laws which apply to multiple claims decide is there really nothing here or is there something but not something else What's wrong with that disposition? I'm not not sure that the vacature order is before, or the remand order, rather, is is before this court. um, Well, I think, well, I'm not saying that we could could do anything about the state court electing to proceed if if it now has jurisdiction. Um, But we we could send a message that maybe you shouldn't, maybe you ought to wait and let the federal court decide the supplemental jurisdiction. The federal court shouldn't have dis- should not have declined supplemental jurisdiction, and we and in my view, which may which is maybe totally off the wall. But if that's the case, uh, then on remand, uh, the court could, after further review or consideration, adhere to the dismissal of the federal claims and proceed to decide whether there's the plaintiff has any valid claims under state law. That, to me, is the way this should have been done. Well, the the state certainly did consider whether we should appeal the 
um, the the remand order to uh, try to keep the case in one place rather than splitting. You know, the state did not argue to um, have the the state law claims remanded back to the district court, um, but we chose not to not to file a cross appeal. Um, the state case is still proceeding. Um, the scope of employment. Um, the scope of employment certification was not accepted by the state law court. You know, there is a, an order on that motion to dismiss that concluded it was inappropriate. Um, you didn't have a basis to dismiss those state law claims. So that case is currently in active litigation um, at, at, at this point as well. And again, with the, with the state law claims remanded and no longer in, in federal court, um, I, I struggle a bit with how the, the district court would have jurisdiction to continue proceeding with, uh, with, with those claims. Uh, again, the Dodson case in the Supreme Court, and I recognize it's from some time ago, um, makes clear that state employment does not equal, uh, does not equal color of state law. Um, and this court has also, uh, um, has also continued to clarify that. I think the Montana case cited in the reply brief by Appalee actually supports, uh, uh, supports Professor Linder's position here as well. Um, this, it's a unique situation like a prison clergy um, where the state employee is hired to exercise independence. Um, and uh, similarly, the, the Ottman case, which was cited in the amicus brief, uh, supports the proposition that when you have colleague on colleague harassment, that that's not state action. The McGee case, um, as Judge Graz pointed out, does make clear that there needs to be some exercise of power and ultimately, uh, there is no exercise of state power that, that's occurring here. The, the closest that, uh, uh, that Dr. Brown uh, raises is that, you know, here today that the, the law professor has a unique voice or the prestige uh, of, of that position somehow is an exercise of state power. Well, what uh, bothers me are the, are the um, articles in the public newspapers in which he... he dramatically, graphically, whatever, makes clear his eminent position as a professor and therefore gives all kinds of boost to the labor law points he th he's making. That, it seems to me, is going way beyond um, I'm, just, I'm just a private citizen when I'm doing these things. The Article written by a reporter does reference that he was a professor. The opinion piece that Professor Linder uh, wrote does reference that he was a professor. Much like in McGee, the letter to the editor referenced that um, you know, the individual was uh, a police officer. I think to the extent there's extra prestige, it, you know, it comes from the fact that Professor Linder is a law professor rather than the fact that he's a law professor at a state university. Um, there's no... Uh, no additional power of the state that's being exercised in a way um, uh, that is different than if, say, you know, Professor Linder were a professor at Harvard. Um, that's a private university that, again, perhaps has greater weight because um, of the uh, of the expertise and such, but not by an exercise of state uh, 
by an exercise of state power. Again, even setting aside the color of law uh, arguments, this uh, case also squarely fits within uh, the First Amendment retaliation jurisprudence of this court um, as not rising to the level of chilling a person of ordinary firmness. The district court correctly concluded that um, these are less serious facts than even the Nock case, which was a case where this court concluded that didn't rise to the level of chilling a person of ordinary firmness. There, there was you know, an audit of a lady's auxiliary repeated you know, at public city council meetings, um, the, the city officials uh, making uh, uh, comments, uh, a letter that was circulated about um, allegations that uh, the, the the plaintiff's child was uh, you know, with one of the city officials, um, just much more egregious. And here, this conduct doesn't rise to that level. It also, again, doesn't involve the machinery of state government, which was in the Gar Garcia case, one of the distinguishing features. Well, um, I, think, I think the complaint to the head of his department, the head of the pl of plaintiff's department, is, is more chilling than anything done in Naki. And the district court agreed that that was perhaps the closest uh, to coming to a machinery of government. Um, and if the complaint had been acted on, and this was a lawsuit against the chair of the department, that they had taken action uh, because of that, I think perhaps that could, could rise. But the complaint was rejected. Uh, Professor Linder didn't have any greater weight in making that complaint um, as a, you know, a member of the university community uh, than you know anyone else uh, writing in to the chair of the department and making a complaint, um, and so that's something that anyone uh, could do without the exercise of state power. And the exercise of state power was restrained and was not used. Professor Lin or uh, Dr. Brown pleads that he continues to have the support of. Uh, of his chair and and the department as well, so that action ultimately uh, wasn't any exercise of of state power as well. Um, unless the court has any other questions, uh, we would ask that uh, the district court judgment be affirmed. And this this was removed, right? So yes, the state removed this into so this, in, into federal court. The state and the university wanted to be in federal court. We did, and we were not completely successful in, in staying in federal court. Well, you were... <laughs> <laughs> Lots of ironies. Thank you. Thank you, Your Honor. For rebuttal? May it please the court. Thank you, Your Honor. Um, I'd like to start, if I may, uh, briefly with the, with the discussion about... Um, whether additional power is required under state law. We heard that um, in the briefs, and we heard that on the argument uh, from the state this morning. And I want to bring your attention to the footnote 15 of the West case. Um, it cites Griffin versus Maryland, which we've cited as well. And it says, uh, really without equivocation, that the fact that a state employee's role parallels one in the private sector is not, by itself, reason to conclude that the former is not acting under color of state law in performing his duties. If an individual is possessed of state authority and purports to act under that authority, his action is state action. It is irrelevant that he might have taken the same action had he acted in a purely private capacity. 
That's footnote 15 of the West versus Atkins case. I think that... Okay, now just give me an, in a few a few words. What is the state action? The state action is Linder acting within the scope of his employment, using his position at the University of Iowa. Give me a specific action. Writing that, it... That, where, where he was using his authority. He uses authority when he wrote the both the articles. He uses authority when he filed an interview. He uses authority? He, he, he identified himself. He identified himself, and it's our position as we pled in the complaint, Judge, that he, he identified himself as a University of Iowa professor to amplify his message. Because any, any attorney who does due diligence on expert witnesses will look at... Okay, what the, other actions? The other strike, the others... I mean, the, the wearing a T-shirt is, is obnoxious, but it wasn't, it wasn't, he wasn't acting for the University of Iowa when he did that. Uh, I think I think that that may be fair. The state does concede that he was acting within the scope of his employment when he was doing that. The other action would be going to uh, Dr. Creter, who is Dr. Brown's supervisor, to levy these defamatory falsehoods to his supervisor. And so those are the actions that we have specifically pled in the complaint. But how, how about Mr. Langholz's point that when he does this, he's exercising his sort of authority as a law professor no different than had he been at a private university. It wasn't, there wasn't anything magic about the fact that he was at the University of Iowa. It was his status as a law professor. Under West versus Atkins and its progeny, Judge, what we're looking for is are they acting within the scope of their employment? Footnote 15 that I just you mentioned. Know, that's just not going to, that, that just so, doesn't do it. So the, the point. We are not going to, at least I would never expand scope of color of law that way. That, what, would, that, would, that, would, that would take away half the business of the state courts and put it all in our laps. Sure. It ju just doesn't fly. And so under Dotson and under the Montana case, there are rare exceptions to this because the, it's the Luger Not test. rare exceptions. The, there, are, there are exceptions for public defenders who are acting as adverse to the state and clergy. And those are very specific give, give exceptions. Give me a page site where the Supreme Court said, and what we're doing here for a defender or for clergy is a rare exception. It, well, the West versus Atkins says that Dotson was the one, the only time the Supreme Court has held that... doesn't um, say it's rare. It doesn't say it's rare. That's fair. That's, that's my paraphrase. It says it was the one time. And the Eighth Circuit in Montana um, also said that, and recognized that West said that Dotson was the only case where the Supreme Court has said that a, that a state actor within the scope of their employment, at, performing their official duties, acts, does not act under color of law. So for the reasons um, in our brief and, and this morning, um, we ask that the district court judgment be reversed. Thank you. Very good. Thank you. The case has been uh, well briefed and argued, and we'll take it under advisement.